Welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, we are at a critical stage and crossroads in America where our federal, state, and local leaders make several wholesale changes to our justice system in the name of social justice. This past decade saw moves to decriminalize drugs, empty prisons, eliminate cash bail, and also oversaw the dismantling of efforts to keep gangs and violent crime under control. We are seeing the ill effects that many in law enforcement had predicted. We hear evidence-based policing and evidence-based practices a lot these days. Exactly what does that mean? Does it mean that the results of a program are deemed the decider in whether or not it is replicated or funded? Do we then package it up and institutionalize these evidence-based practices at law enforcement agencies across the country? Well, today we're going to get some light shed on evidence-based policing practices by Dr. Renee Mitchell. She served in the Sacramento Police Department for 22 years, and she's currently a senior police researcher with RTI International. She holds a BS in psychology, an MA in counseling psychology, an MBA, a JD, and a PhD in criminology from the University of Cambridge. She was a 2009-2010 Fulbright Fulbright Police Research Fellow. And you can view her TEDx talks, Research Not Riots, and Policing Needs to Change, Trust Me, I'm a Cop, where she advocates for evidence-based policing. She is the co-founder and executive committee member of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing here in America. She has taught and lectured internationally on evidence-based policing. Her research areas include policing, evidence-based crime prevention, evaluation research, and methods, place-based criminology, 911 calls for service, and implicit bias training. Welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Renee Mitchell. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Hey, you are not new to the show. You're returning and you've been on before with um, Captain Jason Potts at uh, Vallejo PD talking about evidence-based policing. Since then, you've shifted careers. You've you've gone all in and you moved West Coast to East Coast and you're a full-time bona fide uh, researcher, what what made you decide that switch? Well, so after 22 years in policing, one, uh, my family, we were kind of ready because my husband could retire from Sacramento PD um, so we could actually move. Um, but two, I think for me, in some ways, you know, as a cop, you go from handing, handling like individual problems or neighborhood problems. And I wanted to get to a level where I was trying to help more with, you know, maybe national problems, international problems, things that could have more of an impact and change things um, versus, you know, the day to day. And believe me, like I really actually miss certain components of policing, but not all of it. And, you know, the grass isn't always greener. You get to the other side, to the research component, and there's you know, you're not making big changes in the world either. You do a lot of research that nobody hears about or doesn't go beyond the piece of research that you did with that individual police department. So, but that was kind of the reason I was ready to shift is 
I think, you know, I just wanted to try to make a bigger difference somewhere in the world. Yeah, well, you're doing that. You've written a couple of books uh, on evidence-based policing. They sound like guides into how to implement evidence-based policing. Who did you write the books for? Are they... Can a line officer read these books and say, okay, I'm going to make a change? Or are they focused on administrators or agency change agents, chiefs, sheriffs? Uh, can you get involved at the line level? Oh, yeah. And that's, I, I, I feel like I always tell people everything I do is really for like the street cop. Um, even the research I do now, I'm always interested in how to make, and I still say our and we, even though I've been admonished that I'm not a cop anymore, but like how to make lives better for us, for like the, sh the street cop who, you know, is the one out there actually doing the work. So the books were all written for the practitioner. Every single one that we wrote, I wrote them in conjunction, the first two in conjunction with like Laura Huey. So the first one's edited um, with different contributors. The second one, there was four of us who wrote it. Um, two of us were working cops and my third one was myself on my own, but it's all written for practitioners to learn and understand if they want to apply evidence-based practices in the field, if they just want to learn about it from the ground up. Because um, a lot of people, they might have heard evidence-based, um, but they might not have a true understanding of what it really means. Because there's a lot of um, misunderstanding around the words. I think it's like anything, when you're first learning it in the field, you've heard it, but it might not be exactly what it is. So people confuse it with like using data or they confuse it with, you know, a Google search um, and evidence based practices. And because Larry Sherman took it from medicine and then translated it to policing, really what it is, is testing whether a practice works or not. I mean, fundamentally, that's what you're doing is you're testing something in the field through control, like you're con con you're manipulating something in the field to say, do we know if this is an effective practice? Is this an efficient practice? Does this is this a practice that creates harm? But you you want to know those things because in some ways, a lot of policing is social experimentation on the public, just without any controls. Ultimately, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you just mentioned uh, Larry Sherman, Lawrence Sherman, as we know from the domestic violence studies, a seminal study um, that really started the, the movement on how we changed uh, policing involving domestic violence cases. Can you give us a couple of other examples of EBPs that have changed the direction of policing over the last, say, last five or ten years? Oh, well, his work with hotspot policing, um, his work and hotspots has been researched by Cynthia Lum, Chris Coper. Um, Chris Coper is the one that created from Larry and David Weisberg's work. They did the original hotspot study and Chris Coper looked at the, you know, how long you need to be in a hotspot to really be effective and looked mm -hmm. at, um, you know, the 15 minutes is roughly how long you need to be in a high crime area to reduce crime and calls for service. And that was out of his, I think it was his master's thesis for the, and they call it the Coper curve. Um, but Cynthia Lum, Jerry Ratcliffe, um, Joel Kaplan, there, there's a ton of researchers and practitioners. That was my own work in Sacramento um, was a hotspot study um, who have looked at, 
you know, can you reduce crime and, you know, can you improve um, citizens perceptions of police by, you know, doing community engagement? We did a randomized control trial in Portland to evaluate um, Portland community engagement. And I think David Weisberg also did one where he was looking at um, using a police officer coupled with a, a mental health person, you know, mm-hmm. in hot spots. And that was a really interesting one because you think about like these crime hotspots, you know, there there's victims living in those crime hotspots, right? And, sure. and I shouldn't even say victims, right? Just normal human beings going about their, their daily business. But if you have drug dealing or shootings or gangs, you know, in your neighborhood and you're trying to work and raise your children, you know, you, you're growing up with a level of trauma. So having a mental health person who's there involved in the community just for like that support and then the officer there to help with like the crime, you know, he showed that the, the, the citizens really had that view of, Hey, this, we like this. We like this, the way the interaction is going. We like having the mental health person here. We like having that, those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that work he did was with Brenda Bond, um, I think. And I'm probably going to screw that up. And then Brenda's going to be like, Renee, mess that one up. Um, but there is, so Hotspots is one. Body-worn camera is another one. And that, the very first study um, on body-worn camera came out of the chief of Rialto, um, his thesis with Cambridge. So, you know, he kind of started that line of research about can you reduce, you know, uses of force through body-worn cameras with Brock Ariel out of Cambridge. So those are, and that's just like the tip of it. That's not even looking at, there's a ton of work as far as experiments being run with high visibility um, policing, um, mental health interactions Mm -hmm. in New Zealand. They have their Center for Evidence-Based Policing you know, in the UK, because they have the influence of Cambridge, um, even in South Africa, they have a center um, that is really promoting evidence-based practices. And they're starting to do studies out in South Africa with their police departments and trying to do experiments out in the field to better understand police practice. Yeah. There's there's a lot of like those are just the ones I could think of off the top of my head. Sure. And and those all seem to be pretty uh, recent and. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the Rialto body uh, cam uh, study, and that is I'd consider that a seminal study because so many students uh, who write about the benefits or the detriments of body worn cameras always, I mean, to a person, cite that Rialto study. Um, yeah. So so we know that they're being done, but um, we need more and more. And and actually, if we use the EBPs as a gauge, um, I've seen studies that say programs that we've heavily invested in in the past don't actually work when we hold them up um, to to scrutiny. And no, yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about like D.A.R.E. and GREAT, you know, for drug resistance and gang resistance and and others um, that, you know, some have said, hey, um, you know, they're not, they actually are not that productive and actually might be a little bit counterproductive. How do traditional methods of policing fare in evidence-based uh, policing uh, study? Well, so you, like you mentioned DARE, you know, that's one of them that 
study after study shows is fairly ineffective um, and sometimes has backfire effects. And for those listening, you know, backfire effect is showing that the people involved in the treatment were worse off than they were before. So there's been um, st- uh, studies with DARE where there were kids that didn't get the treatment. They didn't go through DARE and then kids that went through DARE and they showed that they actually used, I think it was like nicotine and alcohol more so than the counterparts that got nothing. Mm-hmm. Same with scared straight, scared straight right. um, for 20 some odd years. <laughs> Before they randomized it into, hey, let's send some kids through scared straight. Let's just leave those other kids like normal process. And they showed the kids that went through the scared straight program actually had like a higher recidivism recidivism rate than the kids that they just did nothing with. And I and I think the problem to some extent in policing is this that we need to do something right Right. And this is why, like in in the one TED talk where I talked about, you know, research, not riots, is if you look at our history in policing, we are a political entity and people get angry that we're a political entity. But that is what America has structured for American policing. We have said we want policing to be under the control of a city or a mm-hmm. county. We do not. And, and we have a state policing, too. But those are the structures that we want it under, which means that we have, you know, 18,000 different um, feds, too. So we have eight, almost 18,000 different types of police agencies across the U.S. And then you have different types of control over those police organizations. Right. You have, you have a city manager, city council. And those are the people that are directing what they want the police to do or not to do. And so politics are driving police practice. And so to me, the analogy is like right now you could see what happened with politics driving medicine with COVID and the vaccines, right? It's a hot, it's a hot mess, (laughs) right? Like that's what we've seen. It's a hot, hot mess. And you have misinformation. People like have no idea like where to get good information. People have been now locked into their ideology on whatever side they're in. And now that's the medical decisions they're making. So to me, this is the first time you've seen medicine being driven by politics, whereas before medicine was trying to be driven by good science and good research. So if you look at that analogy and then you look at policing and say, okay, well, policing has been driven the same way as medicine now has been for the last year and a half. Does anybody have an expectation that we would be better off? So that's why I think we end up with these police practices that can end up being detrimental or that we don't understand if they work or not, because we're more driven by the politics and if something feels good or if it sounds good to the community Mm-hmm. Then we are by what works. Right. And, yeah. And I think the public health and medical community is not immune. Pardon the pun. They're not immune from being political and politicized themselves. We saw it in the 90s. We saw it with the, um, you know, people from CDC testifying that we were going to have, uh, you know, drug addled uh, crack babies running the streets <laughs> robbing. And we've seen the struggle on uh, whether or not marijuana <clears throat> should be a schedule one drug or not. Um, and other battles like that, we've seen, um, you know, CDC declare police violence as an epidemic and things like that. Um, that's sad to see. Um, 
I want to get more into um, multidisciplinary teams uh, about uh, police working with others. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's police one, the number one dot com forward slash registration. And we're back and I'm speaking with Dr. Renee Mitchell, co-founder of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, former police officer and now full-time researcher. And we talk about it all the time at school, uh, the justice pendulum, how it swings from way to the right, way to the left again, and then uh, back to the right. And no pauses in the middle, right? We've seen attacks on policing, the prison system, courts, uh, even schools. Uh, when people, uh, it riles me to throw out that school to prison pipeline um, adage. And uh, how can evidence-based policing help us from these huge swings? Um, can they be a sort of tether to reality? <laughs> I would love that, but that would mean that you you would have to get rid of like your own internal bias and listen to the research. And that is something, I mean, it's hard. That's something like when we founded the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, like that is our driving like beacon. We mm -hmm. always say, because people will often, you know, well, what do you guys believe on this, this or this? And I always say, well, it's, if, if the research shows, whatever the research shows, then that's what we'll advocate for. And if the research changes, then that's what we'll advocate for. And I think that's where people get like, oh, you know, well, the re you know, like they'll always bring up the eggs you know, that kind of, those kind of studies of like, well, they said eggs were bad for you. Then they say eggs were good for you. It's like, well, that's, that's part of knowledge, right? Like when you're, when you're studying something, it, it doesn't stay like static for decades. Like we right. get better and better at our research and better, better at our techniques of doing research. So I would love to say that evidence-based policing is really going to tether us to something but I think human nature overrides, you know, science and logic and data. And police chiefs are, um, their jobs, they're beholden to a city manager. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, it, so I know it was Ed Flynn that said it, but I'm going to probably butcher his words. Um but he had said that there's nothing easier than following like tradition or you can't be fired if you follow tradition or something to those effects. He's much more eloquent than I am <laughs> because what he meant is if you try to be like evidence-based or you try something new or you're trying to, you know, run a randomized controlled trial as a chief, you could be criticized or fired because you just didn't do what the neighboring agency was doing. And if you just do what the neighboring agencies and everybody else is doing, you're not going to get fired. You're going to keep your job as a chief. 
So there's no incentive for policing ever to be based on like science and research. There is, it's incentivized to be a political organization run by a city council or city manager or mayor. And that's the structure of policing. And until that changes, I don't know that we'll be entirely tethered to evidence-based policing unless like the state of Oregon has mandated that when police adopt certain practices that they have Mm. to be evidence-based. Right. I've seen that. But what's funny, so they say that, but then at the same time, Oregon just passed a law to fund, I think, all of police agencies to have a CAHOOTS program. And the CAHOOTS program has, has, is founded on no research, has no evidence base, has not <laughs> had a process evaluation and outcome evaluation, has had no evaluations, but because the Atlantic have, have written about them, you know, all the newspapers, all the medias have basically hailed this as like, you know, this mental health program is the saving grace to policing. Now everybody across the United States wants to have a CAHOOTS program and Oregon's funding it for their state, even though they said everything we do should be evidence-based. So there you go. There's politics again, right? There you go. Yep. Yeah. So I totally hear what you're saying. And, um, it's the politicizing of, you know, somebody's running for office and they run on a crime platform, um, or a freedom platform, as we've seen, and we've seen some real liberal DAs across the country. And I think now we're, you know, here we are in this probably four or five years of the process, and we're seeing the result. We didn't need to do a study. We are seeing the negative outcomes of uh, anything goes policing, right? Um, We've been criticized for the, quote, war on drugs, and yet there's been no uh, counterbalance. So you take everything out of the hands of the police and look at what we've got. We've got these all-time highs in overdose deaths and and uh, addiction. And um, we, we keep hearing from uh, CBOs, community-based organizations, and pu- you know public health-like groups saying you've got to put people into rehab. You've got to put people into rehab. But I mean, I've seen Studies that show people sometimes need to go through rehab five, six, seven times to get, well, we're not allowed to say clean anymore to get, but to get, can we say straight? Can we get straight again? Um, and I think it funnels back into the cottage industry of all of these treatment programs and funding is funding, driving, policing. What what's the counter to evidence based policing to the drive for funding? Oh, I, well, I think the counter to evidence based policing is really the media. I think if you, it, I think it'd be interesting to just follow, like wherever the media is saying we need to be, that's where policing and the city councils and everybody starts saying, well, we need to we need to do this thing too, you know, because <laughs> the media is saying like here's our newfound thing you know and because if you look at the 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 rehab industry and and I'm and I am painting this with a broad like swath because sure. and this is not my area of research either but not many of them are evidence based like a lot of them you know they are proponents of like AA and AA has a very poor when it the the research that I've read on it 
like, uh, and and there's a ton of people who have gotten clean and sober on it, you know, good friends of mine. And I actually was a therapist before I was a cop. And that was the industry I worked in was the recovery industry. And I always say I was raised in recovery. So I know AA very well. Um, but there's no evidence base behind it that shows that mm. it is a good solution for the majority of people. And that is the other thing. Like when you're doing research, you're looking at groups of people. So you're not looking at like those individuals that something might be successful for. You're looking at group, like comparing a group that's going through a treatment of some kind to a group of people who are either going through a different treatment or mm. nothing at all, like your business as usual. Right. But they have showed like medically assisted treatment can work for some people. And like if you look at other countries, they go for harm reduction where I think because of our culture in America, we go for this abstinence where for me personally, I think it would be better to have somebody on smaller doses of whatever they need to function. And if they could still hold down a job and have a um, life with their family that is better than trying to make them completely abstinent where they're white knuckling it and they're just going back out and it's an all or nothing you know like I I broke my recovery I have zero days now I'm just going to go on a binge and they break trust with their family they lose their jobs you know what I mean like yeah totally. and they end up in a cycle yeah so I, I think that's where you know you need more research about what works I think I think all of the pushing things down from a state level to a community level, I don't know that that's been healthy or good for anybody in America. Mm-hmm. And that outside of the the drug issue, that is some of the research I've been doing is around the mental health um, issues that police are dealing with. Um, yeah, like, that's a big one. Because so, those are intertwined too, right? You, I mean, you know as well as I do, the mental health and the drug addiction issues that cops deal with mm-hmm. are often like there's the com- comorbidity in that, you know, mm-hmm. they are dealing with both. Right. Yeah. So I want to wrap it up. I, I know your time's valuable. I want to ask you the last question about multidisciplinary efforts. And we've seen some great ones when we all come together towards a common problem. And I love using the, Boston Operation Ceasefire as, you know, just from every angle. um, And I mean, disagree with me, if you will, but um, you have the Harvard researchers, Kennedy and Braga, and they get everybody together, the police, probation, parole, courts, judges, public health, uh, educators, uh, parole, probation. I'm sure I'm missing somebody, but they all get together. They all share data. They all come up with a plan. They all have a role. And uh, it, it's it been proven and it's been replicated across the country. The problem is, like I, I see a lot, is they'll take a name. Like we have Oakland Ceasefire and we know how well that's doing right now. Um, you know, Oakland's at nearing all-time highs in homicides yeah. this year. And at the same time, they say, we do not want gang injunctions because they're unfair. And we don't believe in this and we don't believe in that. So they take up a name. 
and they they push it forward and that dilutes the validity i think when yeah. people say well they're they're doing ceasefire and it's clearly not working but they're doing a version of it who's the who's the tiebreaker who brings everybody together and says okay wait a minute that's not ceasefire you need to do this is your role do this um but we have we have mayors running things we have governors running states and we've got you know a new person in the White House every four years. Right. Uh, how do we make sure that we're bringing everybody together and they're doing their part? Because oftentimes, like the drug war, we say, okay, public health, take it away. And then nobody shows up on stage. Yeah. I, oh, that's a tough one, Jim. I don't know that I have an answer for that. Um, I think, I think some of this lies with like education. Um, so that's like the, Getting people to understand, like, really what, like, when you're talking about, like, Operation Ceasefire, like, that's a good example. Um, because it, it's an evidence-based practice, right? But you really have to understand, like, what evidence-based means and what the research means. So you have to understand, just like you said, you can't pick apart, you can't cherry-pick a program that worked, that showed that it worked in a certain city, and then say, okay, there's, Operation Ceasefire has, the, they did these seven things. Well, we're going to implement four of them and these other three we're going to tweak or do differently. And then when it doesn't go right, say, well, it doesn't work. Well, you didn't. It's like saying take this medicine, but you're only taking like half the dose and then going back to the doctor and saying, well, it didn't work for me. Well, yeah, you didn't take the whole dose. Your your body weight is X amount. If you don't have that whole dose, it's not going to work. So that's. I mean, some of what we do at ASCBP, like, and I'm going to do a shameless plug for our conference, which is May 23rd and 24th in Washington, D.C. this year at American University. Um, and we're doing our cocktail party at the um, National Law Enforcement Museum. But nice, nice. Is, is teaching people, and that's why I write the books, too, about, like, the critical thinking piece and how to walk through, like, understanding the research and understanding the practice. And there's so many more academics that are really trying to help cops understand the work so they don't pick it apart and getting to the city mayors and the city managers. That's another piece that we're trying to put together for ASCVP now is we're, we're creating, working at creating a um, course for city mayors and managers to take um, like a short course on evidence-based policing so that they understand it. Yeah. Um, which has been like one of our big sponsors for the global SCBP groups is SAS, um, which is big out here in North Carolina analytics. Um, but it's really understanding that because if you don't understand it and you're tweaking a program, just like I said, you might not be giving the right dose. And if your city mayors and your city managers don't understand how these things work, like you're spending a lot and a lot of money, right? Ceasefire when you're bringing all those people to the table, mm-hmm. you're probably spending millions of dollars of city dollars, county dollars, and if you're just going to underdose it from the beginning, it's you're just wasting the money. Sure. And and, time. and, people and time. time, yeah, and effort. And then some of these programs, you also have to look at like Kennedy and Braga are amazing, like the personality, the driving force. You had. Um, uh, Ed Davis behind it. Right. Some of these programs, if you don't have those personalities that can really drive the leadership and bring people together, 
like that's another point of like certain programs that you need to basically acknowledge and say, if we don't have that in our city, if we don't have that leadership that could bring everybody to the table and like with public health, make them show up when they need to show Mm -hmm. up. Maybe this isn't the right like medicine for our culture. Cause that's the other piece, right? Like if you're trying to bring in something that worked in Boston and it doesn't fit Oakland culture, well, don't waste Oakland money. Find the program or evidence-based practice that works for Oakland's culture and make that fit. Yeah. And I think there's, if you go review the, the research, there's a lot of, bits and pieces that really work in policing. And I don't think it needs to be this pendulum. You don't have to, you don't have to be a military force to stop crime and you don't have to baby people to, and they're they're not going to, to get them into recovery because I don't think that works either. People need human beings need boundaries set for them. Human beings cannot be allowed to run roughshod over the people in their lives if they have an addiction problem are involved with gangs or whatever because there are victims in their neighborhood in their families because if you have somebody who suffers from a mental health issue an addiction issue um is how your family suffers from their behavior and Sometimes it's good for them to go to jail because they get off the streets away from the people they're around and maybe they could reset and try again. So the idea of like we never want to hold people accountable because we want to give them a second chance isn't always the right choice either. But there's a middle ground. And I think the research really puts us on a path to show like here's a way and that's what I think focus deterrence does. Here's a way to set people up for success if they choose it. And here's a way to hold people accountable when their behavior is harming others over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Right. And you cannot let people run roughshod over other people because all they're doing is creating trauma in other people's lives and setting them up for possible criminality or possible addiction issues because that per- those people in their lives are experiencing all of this with them. Well said. So you've published work in the Journal of Experimental Criminology, the Justice Quarterly, and the Cambridge Journal of Evidence-Based Policing. You have books that include Evidence-Based Policing, an Introduction, Implementing Evidence-Based Research, a How-To Guide for Police Organizations, and 21 Mental Models that Can Change Policing, a Framework for Using Data and Researching for Overcoming Cognitive Bias. Wow. Hey, I'm going to look for these. Thank you so much for being on the show. appreciate what you have to say, and I appreciate what you're doing for the industry. And, hey, you're retired. I'm retired. We're still still (laughs) with them, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I use the we as when we talk about law enforcement, too. And I think I, I think law enforcement can use all the support they can get. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me.
All right, we're going to post uh, in the show notes how to get the books, the titles of the books, and the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing website and how you can join and get to the conference. And uh, if you like the show, let us know. If you have other topics or people you want to hear from, let me know. Drop me an email at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. We'll get back to you for sure. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Watch your back. Be healthy. Stay healthy. Uh, See you soon. Take good care.